Welcome to another edition of the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. My name is Stuart Foley, and I'll be your host standing with you at the corner of Insurance and Asset Management with David Roth. Welcome, David. Thanks, Stuart. Nice to see you. David is a partner and the head of U.S. real estate private equity at Aries Real Estate Group. David, I don't know of another asset class that has been talked more about in terms of COVID impact than real estate, right? It's been a tumultuous year. It's likely to have a lasting impact on this market, but I think there's probably more hysteria than truth out there. What's your view on this market? Well, I, look, I think uh, when you think about real estate, it, we're impacted by the economy. And of course, the economy is being impacted by COVID. But perhaps more than a lot of other sectors, you know, we create, we own, we develop space that people use for the most part. And so in a world where we are worried about being closer than six feet to each other, clearly there are going to be impacts across the real estate sector. The thing to remember is that there are a lot of different types of real estate. And, you know, this downturn, if you will, this inflection point, this moment in time that we're in, it's not characterized by negative impacts across the real estate sector. There are certain sectors that are being helped and certain sectors that are clearly uh, being challenged. It's worth noting that we're, we're talking today when Pfizer has announced that they think that there's a, you know, a 90% efficacy rate on their vaccine. Obviously, to the extent that this COVID crisis extends longer, as opposed to being shortened by something like the introduction of vaccine, that will have more impact on the psychology of consumers and businesses. So today's announcement is, is, is actually a critical piece in the puzzle and something we've all been wondering when it might occur. It is amazing of all of the non-economic or the exogenous things that are going on in the market. And it's your job, and thankfully not mine, to discern all of that into a view by sector. And you talked about sector just a minute ago. Can you go into some of those sectors and how you think they're going to be impacted? Because I think I'm reading into this, but clearly not all equally, right? Yeah. Look, so start by giving a little bit of my background. You know, I, I've been uh, investing in real estate for about 30 years now. I started out when I was in college. The reason I mention this is that, you know, a lot of our business is about pattern recognition. And so this is now my fourth inflection point, if you will, you know, going back to the, to the late 80s. And um, you're always trying to think, how is this the same? How is it different? How did, you know, the different sectors respond to different impacts from the economy or from other uh, exogenous shocks. And the last downturn, frankly, during the GFC, there was sort of a widespread decrease in value as all parts of the real estate sector really were being hit at the same time. What's been different this time is that, you know, there are certain sectors here that have actually been helped. And so you can go through the different what we call, would call main food groups, and then some of the, you know, what I would call more niche sectors. And you could think about how they've each been impacted. Some have been winners, some have been losers, and some are sort of in between and time will tell. So if you think about the winners, I mean, obviously, one thing that's happened with COVID is historical trends towards the use of e-commerce have accelerated. So that has made a 
big, big winner out of industrial uh, assets. The need for industrial assets has gone up as e-commerce has really accelerated into this. And now, you know, there's a view here that the pace of acceleration is going to continue, even if we have a vaccine. I think people who were, you know, perhaps not inclined to to use e-commerce, you know, through this COVID crisis have really learned uh, of of what it's like. I I know that my wife has, um, although she knew going into it. Um, So uh, the industrial sector is something that we've spent a ton of time in over the years. We've owned 111 million square feet or so of of industrial assets over the years. And we've only accelerated our pace of, of both buying and developing into this strength. Another area that we think will continue to show resilience and has done remarkably well are residential real estate in particular markets and particular types. So, you know, we think long term, the residential sector, which is an area that we've spent lots of time in in the past, will continue to do well. There are some geographic differences. The cities like New York, San Francisco are being hurt right now as people think about de-densification and have moved, uh, in many cases, home with their parents. Obviously, if we have a vaccine, that will reverse somewhat. The longer this takes, the more likely that people will continue to migrate you know, out of those kind of places. But in terms of multifamily, we continue to develop assets into that sector. We spend a lot of time historically in the Sun Belt, you know, with, which are markets that benefit from, from de-densification. The losers, if you will, are obviously the hotel sector, which went from, and this was a never really happened in history, you know, went from being well occupied to being 0% occupied. And, you know, the hotel assets, you know, actually cost money when they're under occupied. So that sector is being hurt in ways that we, we've not seen before. And really, almost every asset today is distressed. Now, long term, we think there's going to be opportunity because we think the, you know, the hotel sector is going to recover over time, certainly for certain assets in certain markets. But that is a sector that's certainly being hit right hard right now. The other obvious answer is retail. And the difference between retail and hospitality is that we were you know, somewhat oversupplied in retail uh, in this country going into this crisis. And as a result, you know, we've had acceleration to e-commerce that has continued to hurt retail. But even when we recover, we don't necessarily think it'll be as fast or as strong a recovery as, as hospitality, let's say. This is all generalizations. Every asset is a specific asset. Every situation has idiosyncrasies and, and you have to analyze, you know, the market and the asset specifically, but these are generalizations. And then in between those, you know, winners and losers, you have the office sector, which, you know, is harder to figure out because the use of office space, you know, time will tell how quickly we all go back to the office. I would say at Aries, and my personal belief is that the office sector is not going away. Like we, we've found great success through Zoom, and we can talk about that aspect of how we all do business if we want. But Long-term, it's hard to maintain a culture, onboard new people, have a collaborative culture, and be productive, I think, if you're working from home. So we think that long-term, there's you know clearly going to be a need for office. But in the short, intermediate, and even in the long-term, you know, there's de-densification, which potentially helps in terms of the number of square feet that you need to manage the same number of people, but opposing that is remote working. And so there's a push and pull here, and we'll see over time, you know, how that plays out. It's interesting. You mentioned you just kind of touched on your background. 
you've been at this a while, right? You've been at Aries not as long. So can you just kind of give a little bit of a little sense of your background? And I mean, I know that you're steeped in the real estate tea, but maybe everybody else doesn't know. Yeah, happy to give you a little bit of background. You know, I'll try not to take our entire time because I certainly can uh, just talking about myself. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I've been in real estate now for upwards of 30 years. I started buying uh, apartments in college back when you could do things sort of no money down. Uh, yeah. If, if all those days. Um, I, I do. And, um, you know, I ended up in a partnership that when the first downturn in the market occurred, which was the late 80s, early 90s, resulted in me selling my interest to one of my partners and going to be an attorney. And I went to NYU Law School, and ultimately I became a corporate M&A attorney at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz, never wanting to be an attorney. I'd never really planned on being an attorney. And I did it for about a year and a half and promptly left. I did a move that very few people I think have done before or since. I left Wachtell to go move to Santa Fe, New Mexico and joined a real estate startup and went back into the real estate industry. In 1993, I was with a company called Security Capital Group, where, which was basically it was a private equity firm focused on real estate operating companies. I was with them for a number of years in Santa Fe, opened up an office in Chicago, ultimately moved to London and became CIO of Europe for them. Soon, at some point, I came back and I joined a group called Walton Street Capital. This is condensing a much longer story. I was with Walton Street Capital in Chicago. It's an opportunity fund that's run by Neil Bloom, who is the B of JMB. I was there for about four years, and then I got a call from a headhunter and ended up joining Blackstone in 2000, late 2005. And I went to Blackstone and was a partner there. Ultimately, was there for about a dozen years. Ultimately. I ran Latin America and at some point had a desire to come back to the U.S. And an opportunity came up to join Aries to head the U.S. business. And I took that opportunity and haven't looked back since. That's where I was headed, right? Is like, those sound like very interesting roles. Aside from the attorney part, I'm with you. I, I'm not sure I would have made it a year and a half. I'll be honest with you. But why Aries? Why'd you make the move? That's not their largest block of assets. It takes some courage to make that move. And, you know, what's uh, what was the rationale behind it? Obviously, I haven't had problems in the past changing roles and uh, always had a pretty entrepreneurial background. And, you know, when I wanted to come back from Latin America, you know, the opportunity to help uh, this. And, and I think there are things about Aries that are unique and attractive for me. And, you know, when I try to hire people, I explain this to them. And frankly, when we talk to investors, I try to explain it as well. Aries is a, a tremendous corporate platform. And the benefits of that from information flow to relationships, to deal flow, to ability to raise capital, these are all things that I knew about from my experience at Blackstone. The difference though, is that we were investing and we are investing, you know, much smaller pools of capital, billion to $2 billion pools of capital. And so I was excited about going back to that part of the marketplace. I also thought that that would be an interesting place to be during what I thought would be a coming inflection point, which we've now experienced. Nobody had any idea COVID was coming, but we were long in the tooth on a long dated economic cycle. And so I like the idea of being in a smaller, you know, more nimble place and having the ability to bring the experience that I've had to bear, create the culture that I wanted to create, you know, to help grow this business. So super excited about it. And I think, 
you know, our really approach, which we, we have three different offices around the country. So we're always very close to on the ground. We have to know our markets and our assets very well and, and be nimble investors is something that really appealed to me. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because it just seems like in that smaller market, you can create more value, apply more of your experience maybe than you can in the megas. And, um, you know, it, it makes sense to me. I, this sounds so weird. It's an odd question, but do you see growth anywhere out there in the real estate space? Yeah, for sure. Look, th- there are real winners coming out of this COVID, you know, post-COVID environment. Obviously, what's happened from a personal standpoint, I, I was very sick in March, uh, by the way, so I've actually experienced it. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, and so I feel for everybody who's involved. But I mean, there are th- certain sectors that are being helped, as I mentioned, in the industrial sector. Some of the sectors like the single family to rent market that is, has benefited from de-densification and people wanting to have their own space and have a place to you know work as they're having to work from home. Obviously, life science is something that has benefited from this. Um, and there are geographies that are benefiting, right? So some of the less dense markets around the country are going to benefit, whether it's Atlanta or Nashville or Charlotte or Austin or you know Phoenix or Denver. They seem to be benefiting from migration from the denser, larger cities to the less dense environments. So there clearly are areas that are doing well that are growth areas, for sure. And we talked a little bit about real estate equity, real estate debt. Do the two teams collaborate? How are they on the capital stack? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, for, first of all, give you a sense of of areas which we which we really didn't talk about, and and probably we should. You know, we we are part of 165 billion dollar in assets alternative asset manager, publicly traded company. The company started as a middle market lender, so it has a very large credit business, probably the largest direct lender uh, to businesses. That's where a lot of the information flow comes from from other parts of the firm, in terms of understanding markets and industries and tenants. It's very helpful for us. But there's about, you know, there's over 110 billion of assets under management and credit. There's about 25 to 30 billion in assets under management in a private equity business that has been very successful for a long time. And real estate's about 14 and a half billion. And in our real estate business, about a third of that is in mortgage debt. So we have an origination platform. We have a, a publicly traded mortgage REIT that we manage. And then we have a number of SMAs uh, that we manage. And then the balance of the equity is split pretty evenly between the US and Europe with in each region Currently, we have two strategies, closed-end funds that manage, in the case of one, opportunistic capital, where we're looking to you know, generate high-teen type returns, and then a mid-teen type capital source for what we call value add. So we in the US have about 53 or 54 investment professionals now between the equity and the debt business. We have offices where we all sit, where we have individuals from both sides of the house, both debt and equity in New York, LA, and Atlanta. And then within the debt business, we have additional offices in San Francisco and Chicago. And so we have people pretty well situated in most of the major markets that we operate. We operate, I don't know what the right phrase is, but you know, hand in hand with our partners. We're sitting on investment committee. I'm on the debt investment committee. My The partner who runs our debt business, Brian Donahoe, sits on my equity committee. 
and we're very much linked in. And this has tremendous benefits from us from everything from information flow to direct deal flow. So I'll give you an example. We have a deal that we just put under contract to buy a student housing deal in a, in a you know kind of a large student housing market. That student housing market is one where we on the debt side have made loans to several other properties in the neighborhood, right in the same area, same school. That's an example of one way that that we on the equity side benefit from our debt business. On the debt side, you know, I'll give an example of um, you know a deal where we were selling the asset that we owned, the property that we developed in Chicago, and that resulted in an opportunity for our debt business to provide a loan to the buyer. And since we obviously knew the property well, and we knew the, the the situation, we didn't control who the lender was going to be, but they had the opportunity to pitch and win the business. So there's a lot of synergies between the two sides, I would say. David, if we turn just for a minute to our specific audience, why do you think real estate should be a part of an insurance company portfolio? What type of an insurer? Talk about the liquidity aspects, whatever you want to talk about, but the insurance industry is screaming, crying for yield. And how does this asset class, based on your experience, work in this industry? Look, obviously, real estate has been an important asset class for insurers for a long time, particularly life insurers. Um, you know, the idea of match funding with their liabilities requires cash flow streams that are long dated, that are secure, and in the best case scenario, that grow at some inflationary or better growth rate. So lots of different types of real estate. And of course, the real estate industry is not one size fits all. There are certain industries that are, you know, a 20 year lease to an Amazon is one thing. And then there's, you know, assets that are like hotels, right? And so the type of collateral matters quite a bit. You know, one of the things that I think uh, the insurance industry is grappling with today is that perhaps in the past there was a, a focus on, you know, CMBS for CMBS sake, but not as much focus on the underlying collateral. And in a world where the collateral types are sort of dramatically performing in a differential way, I think this is going to be increasingly important to them. But again, going back to the main points, you know, insurers have invested in longer duration, fixed rate commercial mortgages and core type real estate for a long time. As insurers are thinking about how to match their liabilities, match their you know, funding needs in the future in a close to 0% interest rate environment, I think they're increasingly focused on that 5 or 7% bucket of alternatives of which real estate is part of. And I think we can provide incremental yield in a really what I think of as a good risk-adjusted way compared to some of the other alternatives um, for insurers. On the debt side, you know, obviously there's been a historical focus on longer term, either CMBS or RMBS. Shorter term floating rate loans to like transitional properties that can offer like sector diversification and additional yield for life insurers, but really requires, I think, high quality managers. And that's one of the things we're trying to provide for insurers. And then our other strategies, which are on the equity side, value add and opportunistic real estate, you know, this also allows insurers, insurance investors to seek, you know, additional return through property improvement. And again, the choice of who you pick as a manager is really matters on that. I know that you being Aries partner with insurance companies, can you get into any specifics on any of those mandates? 
Well, I've been told that I'm not supposed to talk specifically about each of our funds and either how they've performed. And, you know, there's like lots of requirements around that. But I would say this, you know, insurance clients have invested across the Aries real estate platform debt and equity in both the U.S. and Europe. And, you know, given this need to enhance income, you know, given the low interest rate environment on investment grade fixed income portfolios, you know, we've noticed a heightened interest in strategies that both distribute income, but also, you know, have some growth attached to them. Certainly for debt investors, including life insurance companies, you know, we have been a provider of sourcing of shorter duration transitional lending, which obviously can create different exposures and provide incremental yield over time. We've worked with separately managed account clients to make sure that our loans are, are like pledgeable to FHLB, which I know is important uh, to insurers if they participate in the lending program, which they, which I assume many do. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, that's a no-brain deal. They, absolutely. That's, I think that's a really big deal for them. Yeah, yeah, and and most I think do, and we and we offer you know transparency on our commingled vehicles to facilitate the best possible capital treatment. So you know by partnering with somebody like an Aries, we think insure investors can gain exposure to high quality, well managed portfolios of shorter term floating rate loans, loans on transitional assets, and basically incrementally uh, help with yield. And then for the insurers that are comfortable with value add, real estate returns are opportunistic as a small component of what they do. You know, we think we provide strategies that have a proven long-term track record and and can really help meet the uh, return requirements that they're looking for. I, I want to ask a question and you don't have to answer. My favorite type of question. I, I teach, right? I teach, uh, teach college students. Where do you teach, out of curiosity? I teach at Northeastern Illinois University and, and my I used to teach at uh, at Lake Forest College, and now I teach at Northeastern. And it's funny, my wife's uh, my wife's from Highland Park. Is that right? Yeah, right down yeah. the street. Right? I spent a ton of time in that area. Yeah, and my mentor, my mentor uh, when I was younger, was a guy from Lake Forest. Oh, is that right? Yeah, a guy named Tody Mano. I don't know if you ever met him. I I didn't. Uh, but what has happened outside of COVID's impact on the real estate market is COVID's impact on the job market and internship market for students. Right, so. You and I have both been out here for a while. I'm winning the gray hair race, but nevertheless, the question I guess I have is, you are walking across the stage of your college graduation at the ripe old age of 21, and you take your mortarboard off, you give it a fling, and you meet yourself today. What would you tell that 21-year-old David Roth, given the current environment for opportunities in internships and full-time job? Yeah. I mean, look, I think that that's a great question. I get asked these kind of questions all the time. And what's interesting, I mean, of course, this environment I'm sure is more difficult uh, than some. And cyclically, we have these moments where it's more difficult to find the right job and to find any job. And those are always tough times. The answers I tend to give are more generalized than this specific moment, which is find something you do that you like. Yeah. That's the most important thing. If you like what you do, you will do it better and you will enjoy it over time. So I give people that advice for when they actually find a job. You know, my advice is be a learner, you know, be the person who says, I will do that. I will try that. I will expand myself and take risk. Find ways to make yourself indispensable to the person you work for. That's how you will get ahead. 
take on more responsibility than even you think you can handle. Like put yourself at risk. That's what I think, you know, is 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 the best you thing that young people can be doing when they're in the work environment. You know, as for other advice that I would give, you know, somebody in this particular time period, you know, I think you just have to make a job if you're out of work of getting a job. You just have to talk to as many people as possible because in my experience, oftentimes people don't even know they need you as an employee until you've spoken to them. So find a way to talk to as many people as you can, not in a way that makes it look like you're begging for a job, but in just in informational ways. And I, I'm, I'll put myself at risk saying this, but when somebody reaches out to me and says they want to talk to me, I generally say, I'll talk. Yeah. It's really, I think, you know, sort of one of these deals where we, we need to pay it forward, right? Thank you for being on. You've been a great guest. That's appreciated. The thing that people can't see is I can see you and I, and <laughs> you have a better podcast setup than I do. And I thought that I, you know, I've been referred to as the Joe Rogan of insurance asset management podcasting. So, man, you you raised the bar. Um, this, is, this is actually his uh, Joe Rogan setup here. I that's think. awesome. I love that. That's great. Thanks for being on, man. We've really enjoyed you being on. Pleasure. It's really, uh, you know, the most important thing for us at Aries is our clients, and a lot of them are insurance providers. And so it's great to have this opportunity to talk to them directly. Thanks to our audience for joining us. If you like us, please follow us on all the major platforms. We'd uh, love to hear your suggestions for future podcasts. You can reach us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. 